everybody. Welcome to a special edition of the Roarcast presented by JAG1 Physical Therapy. I'm Mike Kowalski joined by Kyle Matrician. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Mike? Doing great. We got a, we got a great episode coming up. I don't want to toot our own horns here, but beep, beep. Toot, toot. Um, you know, it's it, we're airing this on Martin Luther King Day. And we were able to get uh, secure a special guest, Jim Miller, Columbia College class of 1970, uh, WKCR announcer. You'll hear his story um, about his time on Columbia's campus during the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And we, we had him joined by members of the Black Student Athlete Alliance, uh, the board members who we'll introduce after the break um, that were able to have a nice little panel discussion about you know how things have changed, how they haven't. That's fine. Uh, yeah. yeah i think a really uh impactful conversation for sure it was it was nice to see the the members of the bsaa interacting with jim and really picking his brain about uh everything that was going on on campus during the civil rights movement and you know a lot of the other move i mean you know he talks about the the vietnam uh, war but you know there were other movements that and other things going on in the country that led to the civil rights movement. So without giving too much away, I don't want to spoil it too much, but, um, you know, some really impactful stuff. And I also think uh, hearing from members of the BSAA about what they're up to right now and how the, how the BSAA is progressing and, you know, the different things that they're doing to be involved and help out the campus community uh, was really, was really great to hear. So I think definitely a great podcast uh, and definitely a fitting time to have it on Martin Luther King Day. So we're not going to give too much more away. We're going to throw it to a quick commercial break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be joined by Jim Miller and members of the BSAA. So stick around. During my time at Columbia, the incredible support from the university alumni and parents has helped us make great strides in the resources we've been able to provide our student athletes in and out of competition. We do not want to lose that momentum during this unprecedented year. With that in mind, I'm excited to announce the launch of the One Roar campaign for athletics. For this year only, the One Roar Fund will replace all sports-specific fundraising. By bringing our alumni and parent communities together, we can truly do something exceptional for past, present, and future Columbia Alliance. In these times where reduced revenues and increased fiscal pressure are the new normal, The money raised during this campaign will support each of our 700 plus student athletes from all 31 sport programs, as well as the administrative units that support our teams. Your past investments in our athletic programs have been critical to our success, and I hope we can rely upon you to help our entire department through these challenging times. Be safe and go Lions. For more information and to make a gift, please visit GoColumbiaLions.com backslash one world. New York Presbyterian Hospital is one of the nation's most comprehensive, integrated academic health care delivery systems dedicated to providing the highest quality, most compassionate care and service to patients in the New York metropolitan area, nationally and throughout the globe. New York Presbyterian is consistently recognized as a leader in medical education, groundbreaking research, and innovative patient-centered clinical care. Ranked number one in the New York metropolitan area by U.S. News and World Report and repeatedly named to the honor roll of America's best hospitals, New York Presbyterian has 10 locations in the metropolitan area. For more information, visit nyp.org today. Okay, we are back. 
We are joined with a stellar cast this week, uh, celebrating Martin Luther King Day with uh, Jim Miller, Columbia College class of 1970, along with uh, board members from the Black Student Athlete Alliance. Uh, we have Ike Nweke from men's basketball, Madison Hardy from women's basketball, Ty Bibbs from men's basketball, Lillian Kennedy from women's basketball, and Paul Akire from football. So everybody, thanks for joining us today. This is gonna be a, a fun discussion. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. So Jim, I want to, I want to start with you a little bit. Um, like we mentioned, you uh, graduated in 1970 from Columbia. Uh, you were involved in WKCR. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the athletics program in your announcing days and uh, we'll, and let you tell your story a little bit. Well, I grew up in uh, the suburbs outside of Cleveland. And when I came, I always have been a sports fan, particularly major league baseball, NFL, at the time I was growing up, we didn't have an NBA team in Cleveland quite as of yet, but uh, followed the high school basketball team and was fortunate enough to come to Columbia at a time that we had a great basketball team. In 1968, we won the Ivy League title. Unfortunately, we've been waiting a little while since then for another chance to do that. Uh, ranked in the top 10 in the country, terrific teams over the next three years. I got involved in KCR, I think, I wish I remembered that far back, but I think largely out of the interest in sports and the best way to do it would be to announce it. I think I used to walk around as a kid carrying what you used to call transistor radios with the Indians games blaring out in my ears. So uh, always have been a sports fan and the best way to be close to it was with KCR. and was fortunate enough to broadcast the basketball and football games my junior and senior years. I get, um, what are some of your, your, the best games that you were able to call? You know, were, were you able to call that Ivy League playoff game or? No, that one I was sitting in the stands at St. John's for that. My, one of my first broadcasts, we played in the Rainbow Classic the following year. The spring of 68 is when we won the Ivy title or March of 68. Um, and then that December we were playing in the Ivy League title and those were my first games and they happened to be in Hawaii. So I actually had assumed the position as sports director. We had no plans to go to Hawaii. I said, let's give it a try. Able to raise some money through some alumni and uh, make the trip to Hawaii. And my second game was against Purdue and a guy named Rick Mount, who Purdue ended up facing UCLA and for the national title that year. We had a big victory, last second victory. And on the tape, which you could hear if you go to YouTube and listen to the McMillan Dotson era, which is the documentary that was put together about that three years, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs uh, when Bruce Metz stole the ball to clinch the game, but that was a memorable one. Anything against uh, any win against Princeton was always memorable. Played Calvin Murphy. Uh, you know, it, it was a fun time to be part of it. And then in the early years of cable, when I graduated, I did play by play for the local cable system. And that 1971 football team was an amazing team that had huge wins over Princeton, first time in 30 or 40 years, Dartmouth, Yale. So those were all fun to tele televise after the KCR days. 
And then talk a little bit about your, your life after Columbia. What have you been up to since then? I'm retired now. My main work was at Showtime, spent uh, 16 years from kind of the formulative days when people that didn't know as much about what Showtime was, 1979 through about 1995, uh, in the programming area, film acquisition, program acquisition, things like that. Uh, then got involved with some startups in the media area and have been, most of them ran out of money before they could get started and retired and being a fan and keeping up with Columbia, with politics, with sports, uh, and make the best out of the hard times we're going through. And kind of, you know, you've been a friend of the athletics program you know, for, for many years now, talk about that relationship and why you felt that it was important to kind of continue that um, since, you know, to give back and continue to contribute to our program in some, some type of capacity. Well, sports has always been something that's important to me. And it was a way, one way to give back for what, and I was, as I said, fortunate enough to be at Columbia at a time we did have some success in basketball and immediately after I graduated in football, and staying involved in whatever way you can and giving some support. Uh, you hope that we can return to that level at some point in time. <clears throat> we've seen some progress and we've had our frustrations, but uh, it's a way of giving back. I, I owe my career to Columbia. When I was a, right out of Columbia, or actually my senior year, the cable TV system in Manhattan, it's now Spectrum, I believe, but uh, they were going to do, and they had maybe 10,000 subscribers, the first cable cast. And they came to the sports information office, uh, which is the predecessor of what they now call Euro Group Mike. Um, and basically, the two of us who did the play-by-play -play on KCR were going to alternate doing the games on TV, on the cable channel. At the end of the season, the head of programming there said, uh, if you want a job when you graduate, come and check us out. He wasn't all that sincere, but I did follow up and that's where I got my first job and that led to Showtime and et cetera. That's great. Now at this point, I guess we're gonna shift the, the conversation a little bit to um, some of the social matters that were on hand while you were at Columbia. And uh, I just wanted to kind of let you set the landscape of what things were like um, during you know, the, I guess it was the tail end of the civil rights movement of the 60s um, during the, you know, Martin Luther King days and things like that, because like we said, this is debuting on Martin Luther King Day. So I want to give you an opportunity to tell a little bit, give a little background of the landscape of Columbia, New York City during those times. It was a turbulent era. I mean, you really feel like everything changed in 1968 in, in the country at Columbia. I grew up in a middle-class suburb and everything in the Eisenhower era and everything there were, this was not exactly known as a turbulent era. And when I came to Columbia, I think 1968 is, I've always described it as the time that politicized me. Largely the biggest issue for a lot of us was the Vietnam War, but there's no question that civil rights in a way marched hand in hand. I think the people who were against the war were also very much in favor of civil rights and making progress in this country and at Columbia on the civil rights front. Uh, one of the 
at times at Columbia that was most uh, memorable is the right was not exactly the right word, but will that we will never forget was the spring of 1968 when the group SDS Students for a Democratic Society took over the number of the buildings at Columbia and basically stopped classes for the rest of the year. It was a turbulent time. Um, one of the issues that they were protesting, and I think there are a variety of factors, the war, civil rights, student representation, but I don't know how much all of you know that there was a gym that was supposed to be built before Levian in Morningside Park. And it was going to have, as best I remember it, it was gonna be both for the student use and Columbia use, but also community use but there was a separate entrance for the community kind of down below, it never got built, and protesting the, in the fact that it was in Morningside Park. And I think there was some opposition to that among the Columbia students who took over the buildings. Um, so a lot was going on. And also when you see what's happening in the police brutality, uh, we experienced it, even the people not involved in the takeovers of the building. I'll never forget the night that the buildings were cleared. We were standing out on campus at about 11 o'clock, just kind of observing what's going on with this line of policemen who all of a sudden charged and with billy clubs and they were basically going, they were hitting anybody that they could, that they came in touch with. This was not even, this was before they went into the building and cleared out the people who were taking over. And I'll never forget turning around, running back to Carmen Hall and racing up 11 flights of stairs just to stay away from being Billy Club. At this point, I just want to open up to um, the rest of the group and see if you guys had any questions about for Jim and uh, we could kind of open up a little bit of a discussion and turn, turn the tables a little bit and let you guys kind of serve as, as hosts of this podcast. I'll get it, I'll get it started. Um... I do want to ask you, Jim, from what you just said, you know, because from that like really powerful experience you just talked about, which I'm sure a lot of people that, you know, attend Columbia right now have no clue. Um, did what you saw over the summer, like bring back a lot of those like somewhat painful memories uh, from when you were on campus? Absolutely. I mean, I think what we all saw over the summer was indescribable in its own way. And <clears throat> the only thing that hopefully with positive out of it is the raising of the awareness and the raising of support for equality. <clears throat> but you, you definitely think about the police situation and it's one of these things, there are times you sit back and say, look at where the country was. The thought in 1968 of the possibility of an African-American president, an African-American vice president-elect who's a woman, seems like a great deal of progress. And yet on the other hand, as we saw this summer, progress sometimes is stalling and not exactly where it should be or where it needs to be at all. I have a follow-up question. I would just be that along those same lines, that there were protests this previous summer and the protests of in that spring of 68 like do you think that well I, my question would be how different they were i guess in a sense 
Like, what would you say the main difference between those two sets of protests are? That's a great question. Um, I think the protests in this in '68 were in an earlier stage. They were led by probably you might call it the radical left to a certain degree. Although there was a you know people who like I wouldn't describe myself as the radical left, but it, people got engaged and involved. I think the fact that it was about the war, that the war was the primary, I think, movement mover of the protests or of the of the activities. But as I said, it walked hand in hand with the civil rights. I think the protests this summer were broader, more scope, not led by a radical group by any means. Um, and I think that the protest was more was also I don't want to say targeted at the at the right or the far right, but I think that there's the understanding, as we've just seen over the activities of the past few weeks and what's going on right now, that we're facing a serious threat from the radical left, radical right, I should say, and that's very different from what we perceived, at least, in 19, for some of us back in the late 60s. I have a question. Um, just to reference today and present day, I would say, I think a lot of people would agree that social media is being utilized as one of the primary forms of activism and showing awareness. So I wanted to ask you during the times of the late 60s, besides protests, were there any other pr primary forms of ways to kind of raise awareness or um, draw attention to what was happening? That's a good question. Um... There were marches, there were peace marches, uh, but there was nothing like social media. There was nothing like the talk radio that is going on right now. And the talk radio that's going on now <clears throat> is dominated probably more on the right than by the left. There was no such thing as CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Um, so I think that, that it was really more driven by mainstream media coverage and by what people were seeing in the streets. And it, you also were coming from an Eisenhower era. <clears throat> Eisenhower was president until 1960, basically, which was known as kind of a stable, quiet, calm era um, and a, a peaceful era, but it wasn't an era in which a lot of activism seemed to be going on. Now, I'll admit I was 12 years old when Eisenhower left office, so wasn't exactly paying a lot of attention to that. But the image that the Eisenhower era has always had is kind of a stable, quiet era. And then activism rose up as the 60s went on. Jim, what similarities did you see from the protests from the 60s to the protests that happened over the summer and even continue to happen, you know, to, to this very day in cities around the, around the country? I, there's nothing that really stands out. I mean, they, there is a mix of people, the bulk of the people are peaceful. There are people who want to cause trouble that's always a little bit different. As I said, back in the 60s, the troublemakers were the far left, the 
SDS student groups, I think that the who is causing the problems in the current, who's causing the violence in the current situation, that depends on who you talk to. I mean, based on what we seem to be witnessing, what the FBI has said, 75% of it is from the radical right. And that's a big difference between what was happening then and what's happening now. The bottom line is demonstrations have always been meant to either advance or protest social causes and, and, and growth and activity in that front. Um, I have a question. How would you say the roles of law enforcement either changed or stayed the same between uh, the protests in the past and the more recent ones like uh, in this spring? or spring 2020? I, far from an expert in that, but I'd say a couple of things. Uh, I think we have grown to understand the issues with law enforcement, maybe more than we did in the late 60s. The fact that you could have had what happened on the Columbia campus that night in May or whatever it was of 68, and still have police activity being what it is now says that very little has changed, but you didn't have the body cameras, you didn't have the coverage of it to the same degree. And I think there's much more awareness that there is at least an issue with hopefully a small minority of the policemen, but an issue that absolutely is problematic and needs to be addressed. Um, I, I would have a question. Um kind of based on, on social media. So obviously I think social media has helped increase um, the effectiveness of activism in our era. Uh, we see like organizations like the NBA, the NFL, uh, MLB able to kind of express activism through their players um, and kind of broadcast that nationally. nationally. Um, and that's been, that's been really prevalent through this spring and summer. Do you think, um, if social media existed kind of back at that time, do you think the activism would have had the same effect or do you think it still would have kind of, they would have had to be on their, uh, step on their toes a little bit and not, not really voice their opinions as they are able to do so today? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think the, what's changed is we accept and are used to activism and protest but I don't, as I said, we didn't have a lot of activism and protests during the Eisenhower era and even in the early 60s. Uh, you know, my background made different than others and maybe people who had grown up in New York had, had felt a certain amount of that in the mid 60s. But I felt like there was a line that was crossed and it, everything just changed in the spring of 1968. And it wasn't just at Columbia, it was on other campuses around too. So I don't know what things would have been like then if social media were part of it. Activism was new and protests, look, there have been protests throughout the history of this country. I mean, there were anti-war protests in the Civil War that went on and the draft riots in New York in the 1860s. But so protests have always been a part of the country, but I don't think we, were as used to them in 1968 as we have become in the 50 plus years since that time. So it's very hard for me to say what difference social media would have made. It's certainly making a difference right now. 
some of it good, some of it not so good. Yeah, my question was along those same lines, knowing that you were in broadcasting, that broadcasting had somewhat of an impact on how people perceive the news. I know this might be like a little bit before you got to Columbia, but I know Malcolm X died in 1965 so I was, well, I guess, and then Martin Luther King died in the spring of 1968. So I was wondering what impact broadcasting had on just the perception of both of those deaths and maybe what your perspective on that was knowing that you were on campus. Cause I, I think I heard that Malcolm X's last speech was at a gymnasium in Barnard. So I wanted to know maybe locally, what was, what were people saying about that? I, well, I wasn't in New York at that time, and I honestly don't have a lot of recollection about what happened when Malcolm X was killed. I certainly remember when Dr. King was killed, then that, you know, broadcasting broke in to whatever telecast might have been on, and that was a major, major event. And you then had that followed by Robert Kennedy's shooting in June, in, right after he won the California primary. And I've really, really the, the two assassinations occurring that changed America and changed the world. Uh, huge, huge impact. And Dr. King's shooting certainly set off a great amount of uh, grief throughout people, the country. And that was just covered by the local media and the national media at that point in time. But it was a major focus as was Kennedy's shooting. And I've often felt, I wonder how much American history was changed by those two events. I think significantly in my opinion. Jim, do you remember where you were exactly uh, when you heard the news of Dr. King's assassination and how that whole day played out for you personally? I don't, it obviously, it was April uh, and so I would have been at Columbia. It would have been whether the protests had started yet or not. I don't know for certain. So that's one I don't recall this is with specificity where I was when I heard it. Do you remember at least like kind of the, the, the mood and tone of campus after it happened? Was it, was it extra somber? Did it, did it impact people at that time? I think people were very much, were very somber, absolutely. Well, people, we talked a little bit about the FBI earlier and their role in I guess finding people today that were involved in the events of last week or just the week, the events of the summer, was there any skepticism around the assassination of Dr. King like in that in the aftermath immediately or, because I know there is some now. I think um, there has always been skepticism and questions that have been raised and especially when it happens to the African-American community as to whether Everyone is being honest and is followed up with the same degree uh, as if it had happened to somebody else. And we're certainly seeing that again today. And you've certainly seen it, the reactions last Wednesday um, when the protesters stormed the Capitol and the police, the Capitol Police didn't seem to offer a lot of resistance. And as has been said by a number of people, if it was an effort, if it was a Black Lives Matter protest, I would the same calm, so to speak, if that's the right word, as far as a reaction goes, have proceeded. So I think that uh, there always have been some questions 
that these, and uh, the fact is the country's always looking for explanations. So there is always, there probably were some questions that were raised and asked at that point also. Jim, kind of going back to something you talked about before, um, you know, we talk about the age of social media now and, you know, it's a little easier to organize protests, but when you were on campus and protests were being organized, like how, how exactly were those protests organized when there like was no social media? I mean, I, you know, people are going to people's dorms, I assume, knocking, letting them know, like, you know, uh, did, did you experience any of that? How did that play out? You know, I really don't know. I, what happened was the SDS went into the Dean's office in that's when it all started and it just spread from there. But it, it word of mouth as much as anything else is what I recall. This was not a protest that I'm about to bring up, but one night I do remember very well, the night before the Ivy League playoff championship game. And there was a spontaneous pep rally on college walk at, at the uh, Sundial for the basketball team around 11 o'clock at night. And that just, it just, I, don't remember how we all found out about it. I was out there for it. The players showed up for it. Uh, and it just spread like wildfire more than anything else. And I think word gets out somehow or other, and you're on a relatively enclosed campus and people find out. But I don't remember anything specifically in how some of us heard about whether it was the pep rally or what happened a few a month or two later with the SDS taking over the uh, Dean's office and expanding from that. You get some of your news from Spectator. WKCR was covering it on a consistent basis. So maybe we got some of our news that way, things like that. I got one follow-up question to that. Um, you know, in that, in the age right now, like I said, of social media and the heightened awareness and, you know, kind of extra sensitivity as to what you should or shouldn't say. Like, what is your, what is your advice to maybe the students of Columbia or anybody for that matter about kind of speaking about how they feel uh, when some people may be somewhat hesitant because they don't want to say the wrong thing, uh, but they still want to make their voice heard? I think it's a matter of go with what you're comfortable with. Some people are not comfortable speaking up. Some people don't want to offend people. Uh, and some people probably should need to be offended, but that's a separate issue. And think, try and think before you, before you send out the text or email or tweet or whatever may be, just give it the extra second or two to go, all right, do I really want to be saying this? Is there a way to be saying it a little more for forcefully or a little less forcefully but you know think and go with your gut though um i had a question just um thinking about athletes today whether they're collegiate athletes or professional athletes a big um perspective or talking point that they we've liked to brought bring up is that if you can support us black athletes on the court then you should be able to support us off the court so my question was, um, back in the late 60s, how were Black athletes viewed and were they given support just on the court and then off the court? Were there different um, perspectives on them? Just curious as to how Black athletes were viewed back in the 60s. 
from my viewpoint, uh, and again, I can't pretend as a white kid from suburban Cleveland to be in the, to understand what an African American, whether it was from the New York area or anywhere else, is specifically feeling or going through. I got to know several of the basketball players being from being close to the program, including Jim McMillan, Hayward Dotson, Leon Williams. Uh, and I think they were very totally accepted on the campus, but I can't honestly say that, you know, that they felt that they were given 100% the opportunity that everybody else had. I'm sure they had their objections because society was what it was at that particular point in time. But I think at least among the students, they were, you know, they were hero worshiped and beloved. And I, you know, I know having talked with Hayward a little bit in recent years before he passed away earlier this year, that uh, he had a lot of affection for Columbia. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with those two? Because obviously they're two of the most influential basketball players to go at Columbia, but um, what was that like for you and, and how were you able to maintain those relationships throughout throughout the years? I, I knew Hayward better than Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was always, Jim McMillan, kind of quiet, calm, go, went about doing his job, just a thing of beauty in the basketball court, uh, that little hitch step and then a shot from the corner, which was no threes at that point in time. But, uh, and you know, he'd come back for the reunions every few years and, but I never was closer to him. Hayward, I would, wouldn't say we were close friends, but we were much, we talked occasionally and he actually did some an analyst work for some of the broadcasts I did after he was done playing. I don't remember if it was on KCR or on the cable, but he did some, I know he did some football color analyst work as well. And we may have been on some of the cable casts for basketball. And then when he went overseas for the roads, I basically lost track of Taylor. Saw him at the 30th reunion, but it was really at the 50th reunion, which was just a couple of years ago, that we got back in contact, had a couple of long phone conversations. He was a fascinating person, just really bright, uh, charismatic, and it's very meaningful to me that it, it near the end was able to resume contact and a friendship with him. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Hayward at that 50th reunion and he was kind of the star of the show. Um, yeah. You know, his health wasn't, he wasn't in great health and it was kind of a surprise to see everybody. So, um, but it was great for him to get honored there. And then he was able to get inducted to the hall of fame in, in 2018, which was great to see him honor. It was well-deserved. Um, so. No, and the last time I saw him was at the homecoming game where all of the inductees were honored and he was glad to be at the homecoming game. And, uh, you know, he was quite the character, but uh, a, a, a real one of the Columbia stars, no doubt. And I was thrilled for him. And I was fortunate to be at his table at the night of the Hall of Fame induction. And it, I think it meant a great deal to him.
Jim, with you being involved in broadcasting so much at Columbia as being a part of WKCR and, uh, you know, have conducting interviews, I assume, with students, you know, for, for the broadcast on and off air. Uh, were there any interviews during the civil rights movement that you did with student athletes at Columbia that particularly stuck out to you uh, through the years about if anybody talked about exactly how they felt about the situation or how it impacted them? Not that I recall, no. Uh, and I actually, we didn't do a lot of interviews with the students. Um, so now I, there, I listened to the McMillan-Dotson era WKCR special after Hayward passed away and he had some variant, and I don't remember the specifics, but it's almost worth going to and finding it on near the end of the album after the games, after the, they were done with the season, with the, with all their play, we talked to a number of the players including Hayward and Jimmy and talked about their Columbia time and Hayward in particular had some interesting comments about his time at Columbia that I should have listened to, re-listened to before doing this, but didn't think about that, but worth listening to. And if you really want to get some perspective, it's on YouTube, so. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get a little more insight into the Black Student Athlete Alliance. And we're going to have a deeper conversation with the members of the BSA that we have with us today. So stick around. <laughs> JAG-1 Physical Therapy is a proud partner of the Columbia Lions. With state-of-the-art rehabilitation equipment and facilities, allow us to develop a specific plan catered to each patient. The JAG-1 team proudly serves the tri-state area with facilities throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, Westchester, Long Island, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. We're here for you. Get back the life you love. Visit www.jag1pt.com that's J-A-G-O-N-E-P-T dot com for more information. We all know what comes with being a fan, the ups, the downs, and everything in between. Share a Coke with a friend. Coca-Cola, the official beverage of the Columbia Lions. Mike, I think I want to take this moment to have uh, the members of the Black Student Athlete Alliance that we have on this podcast kind of give a little like let them describe, um, you know, exactly what the Black Student Athlete Alliance is and what they've been up to and, you know, some of the, some of the positive things that have come out of it already. So um, Hardy and Lil, I know you two best, so I'm probably going to start with one of you. Um, Hardy, you know, do you want to start and just kind of, you know, really give some specifics, maybe some people, you know, some, I'm sure people see online, like, you know, the Columbia Black Student Athlete Alliance, but, you know, maybe give some context to what exactly it is, what exactly you guys do. And um, some, like I said, some of the positives that have come out of it already. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, in the spring, I believe Paul and Rachel, our other president who uh, sadly couldn't make it, got together and just started brainstorming ways that we could just bring black athletes together. And they roped in Lil and Ty and Ike and I had come um, a little bit after that. And we just uh, really wanted to create uh, a place where black athletes could come together and just have com some com camaraderie and we always had seen each other on campus but nothing really to just glue us together so uh, Paul Rachel uh, came up with the BSAA um, we started in I think 
some some somewhere in the in the spring where we were able to really sit down and have conversations with each other about the social injustices about uh, the George Floyd and just how it affected us um, how it affected our teams and just see how other programs like the football team the uh, men's basketball team track team were just dealing with those issues and how we could take notes from each other to deal with our teams uh, which was really a good resource to have and just throughout the year um, we've just met and just had that safe space almost where we could just talk to each other and we've had brilliant guest speakers uh, alum to come and talk to us and just kind of coach us through being a black athlete at Columbia. And it's just been an amazing resource to just be able to connect with black alum and just connect with each other. Um, and we have a, a, week, a monthly uh, meeting where we all come and some sort of event and we'll have some events throughout the spring semester too we're working on. So uh, if Lil wants to add anything, she definitely can, but it's just an amazing thing that uh, we've been able to bring to Columbia. No, yeah, Hardy definitely touched on a lot of it. Really for us, we were thinking that we don't really have an environment or a black athlete community truly on campus where we can all come together. And it's definitely been a little difficult being virtual and everybody's all zoomed out like you're on Zoom most of the day. So it's definitely been a little difficult, but I'm really excited to whenever we get the opportunity to um, connect in person, I think it's really gonna be truly special to like Hardy said, have that space, safe space, be able to talk We've had a mental health meeting as well, just to emphasize the importance of mental health within the Black community. So definitely excited for what we've been able to create and start, and I'm looking forward to see how it progresses. Do any of you have any uh, particular roles within the Black Student Athlete Alliance that you kind of want to share with everybody? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You can go, you can yeah. go. Yeah. Um, all right, yeah, so I got, so me and Ike, uh, we kind of handle the social media stuff. Uh, Mike's, Mike's been a, a big help with that. Um, just kind of reaching out to uh, people within our group as well. So like the group me sending out messages, reminding people when we have meetings, things like that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we do. Um, and then we have, we have like weekly or bi-weekly meetings just with our board. So like the people on this call and obviously Rachel who wasn't able to make it. Uh, so we meet with each other and kind of, we all plan things, uh, together that way. And then our specific roles are, um, kind of what we do to, that's what like the public sees, I guess you could say. So, um, yes, yeah, so I, I don't know if you guys want to talk about your role as well. Yeah, just to kind of add, add on to what I was saying, um, we pretty much just try to um, alert um, just all the members of BSAA of like what we're doing um, pretty much like we, we just tried to use our social media platform um, to to be able to just like just lay out all the information that we have for the members to you know just be more active and, and, and like how Lil had kind of pointed to everything um, and sometimes it, it, it can get to a point like where people don't want to be on zoom way too much but we still do it just so that um we just like are able to just create that form of like free speech and and just and just being able to just like converse with your peers and, and people that are um are kind of like enduring kind of the same things as you so yeah we we just try to use that social media platform as a way to just kind of start the conversation pretty much 
party hit pretty well. How it got started was me and Rachel coming together, trying to push with the momentum that we got during the late spring slash summer, just trying to push for the creation. So Rachel, the other co-founder and co-president, and I have been pretty big and just trying to corral everybody together and create a group for not only us, but a group that connects Black alumni to current Black athletes and creates a space for future Black Columbia student athletes to see what's going on, see the community that we have, and just continue to grow that community. So I appreciate what we've all created, and I hope that it continues to flourish into something amazing. How does, um, let's say you're not a student athlete, but you want to be involved, uh, and you see the Black Student Athlete Alliance, and you think to yourself, well, I probably can't be a part of that because I'm not a student athlete. Is that true? Is there ways that non-student athletes can be involved? Uh, is there any, anything like that? I definitely think so. Just knowing in the past, we haven't, since we're our newly founded group, we haven't like necessarily created a space for people who weren't student athletes to get involved. But I see very quickly in the future, us pairing with another student organization to maybe push forward for community service event. So that could be the black student organization and us coming together to create an environment for, or just create a community, a communal change or creating something for the Harlem community that we're in. So I see something very soon happening. That's good to hear. And what was the overall reaction that you all had when uh, the BSA was formed? I mean, obviously you, spread the word a lot on social media. Uh, I'm sure, you know, just in regular texting your teammates, like talk about the overall reaction that you received uh, upon the formation of the BSAA. I, I guess I, I could speak to that um, a little bit. I think it kind of caught us all by surprise. Um, like Paul and Rachel, as they said, it was kind of, it was a discussion. We weren't really, sh like they weren't sure like what, was going to come of it. Uh, they kind of brought me and Lil in and we just had discussions between the four of us. And then we got on campus and it was like, wow, like this is really our first month on campus. We kind of got to get things going. Had our first meeting. It went really well. Um, our group chat with like the student athletes grew pretty quickly. Um, so I think people, people were excited about it. Um, it's been tough. As everyone said, like Zoom is, everyone hates Zoom. Like you can't, can't sugarcoat that. Zoom is not fun. So um, definitely, if we could do it in person, which when we are able to do it in person, I think the, the group's just going to grow even more. Uh, but I think uh, as of as of right now, um, I think we we've had all the success that we could have hoped for. Um, and I think we're definitely heading in the right direction. So that's that's my perspective on it. Yeah, just to add to what Ty said, we've definitely felt a lot of support. We've had the support from Coach Keese and Ari. They've been very helpful with everything and organizing a lot of things behind the scenes as well. And we've also had a lot of support from Peter, the athletic director. He's definitely made it a priority to have meetings with us, to connect with us, hear our ideas, and he's willing to support us in any way possible, which we're definitely grateful for as well. I think when we talked in the fall too, we, you guys talked about um, it was able to, you guys will be able to bridge more, build more of a community within the entire athletics team. So, you know, you guys kind of get siloed with your teams and everything. Talk a little bit about how that's continued to grow for you all uh, since since we last spoke for NCAA Diversity and Inclusion Week. Yeah, so um, I think, like like we keep saying, like obviously Zoom, Zoom is difficult. Um, it's hard right now, kind of having that incentive for people to come to the meetings, but um, the meetings that we have had have been very beneficial. 
Um, I think everyone who has attended those would agree. Um, but obviously, I mean, just within our, our board, uh, like Rachel, like we knew her, uh, Paul, like I knew him as well. They were on the, like he's on the football team, Rachel's on track, like we see each other, say what's up to them. But like, it was never anything more than that. Like we just kind of knew that they were athletes and we would say hi to each other because they're athletes. But like, it's never been like any like friendship there, I guess, anything deeper than like that connection of just being athletes. Um, and I think this group has like kind of brought everyone together and really created a, a community um, more so than just like a, a label of being a student athlete and having that connection. So it's really more of like a personal connection that we've been able to form um, because of this group. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. I agree with Sai. And, and I think more generally just with student athletes generally, like whether that be on the football team and not just within the Black Student Athlete Alliance, I think my team, there's less of, it's easier to get into conversations about race now that we've created a space where Black student athletes know how to navigate it as well as the things that have taken place and our other teammates know how to navigate it as well. So it's easier to get in those conversations and it's more productive, I think. So just following the creation of this and just all of the initiatives that took place over the summer and are still taking place today. I was going to ask you, um, you know, has the, have, have, have the conversations with your teammates, you know, about race uh, really opened up, uh, you know, and I don't want, you know, obviously the, the conversations that you have with your teammates that are personal and you provide that space for people that are kind of, you know, hesitant to ask because they don't want to offend anybody, right? But have you, you know, have you and your teams been able to have those conversations and make everybody feel comfortable asking kind of hard questions? I think definitely. Um, I would say uh, Coach G and all of our coaching staff on the women's basketball side did an amazing job of just kind of setting out the scene and just saying, opening up a Zoom and saying, here's a place that we can just talk about this because it definitely needs to be talked about. Um, and definitely it wasn't easy for any of the, the Black student athletes to navigate because, I mean, we're 19, 20 years old and they're big issues to tackle. Um, but definitely just setting the scene and kind of sister to sister on, on a, like a friendship family level, just saying, these are things that we face every single day. And it was kind of crazy seeing the reaction of some of my teammates that are like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that. Like I had absolutely no idea. So sometimes things have to happen for us to be able to have these hard conversations and really be able to see each other and say, wow, this is my sister. I'd see her every day. We battle together on the court, but some issues she has to face that are different than mine. And I think uh, the women's basketball team definitely did uh, a good job of just trying to understand each other. Yeah, just to touch on that just a little bit more um, from the men's basketball perspective, um, I honestly feel like we did a good job with that as well. Um, just being able to like, um, kind of create an open forum, kind of like how we did with the BSAA, um, because coming from a team that like, I, I think that this year we we probably have like the most um, black black athletes on our team um, in, in a while, I feel like um, just having the team be like more than 50% black. And I feel like um, with, with all the social unrest and everything that was going on socially uh, this summer, um, and, and leading up to the election around that time. Um, I, I think that we did a good job with that, just being able to just, you know, kind of let out our frustrations and being able to like, um, 
be able to like tell our teammates that like didn't really understand and didn't really know um, what, what we had been experiencing our whole lives and just kind of like have that be at the forefront of, of social media. I, I feel like that was just um, kind of like a burden off of um, our shoulders, just being able to like finally like get out um, all, all the, all the kind of the, the, the things that, that, that we'd been seeing in the media for like years and years and years. But now like, we were able to like actually like talk about it and be like, yo, like this really like affected me in a way that like, that like really like changed my view and my perspective on how I see the world. And now like being able to share that with people that like we thought that we'd never like be able to like have that commonality or be able to like have that conversation with, I feel like that's what made it even more powerful because now we're, we're being able to like let the people that we thought like couldn't really see that perspective on us um, kind of get kind of get that view. So I think that that was really helpful for sure. I was going to ask, um, I'm sure some of your teammates, you know, cause everybody comes from different backgrounds and I'm sure there are definitely some, some of your teammates that come from particular communities that are not really diverse. And then, you know, coming to Columbia, is their first real experience. I mean, kind of just, you know, you talk about being a diverse community, Columbia being in the middle of New York City, it, you know, it, it can be a culture shock for some people and everybody kind of handles that differently. And, you know, how do you maybe as a black student athlete alliance uh, plan to try and help those, you know, uh, help those particular students feel a little bit more comfortable when they come to campus? So I think um, something big that we, we brought up initially is that we want to make sure that our presence is there at the very beginning. Like freshman year, we're always introduced to a lot of um, different programs to bring you into the school, whether it's on sexual violence or mental health um, programs. But we were saying that something that would be big was to introduce the Black, student athlete, the Black Student Athlete Alliance to come speak at the very beginning of everybody's freshman year to kind of introduce them to um, think, issues that we have pre been presented with this summer and kind of get, give them an initial introduction to where we're coming from, what we experience. So that way it's not necessarily too much of a culture shock when they do come into Columbia, but they're gradually introduced to that. So I think that's something that we're connecting with Ari so that she can connect with um, whoever is in charge of that to allow us to be able to speak at those onboarding programs to be able to have our presence known and let those student athletes that are coming in, not even just student athletes, but even anybody who wants to attend to just be there and be able to listen to us speak. I did want to actually follow up on something that was spoken about earlier. Uh, you, you said that you've had, I think Hardy was talking about this. You said that you've had, um, you know, some great speakers uh, at your BSA meetings, um, some really powerful moments. Um, was there any particular moment, and this question can be for anybody, uh, during one of your, I get what, which what I would assume is only been Zoom meetings, uh, where you had somebody speaking and it just like hit you really hard, like in your, in your, in your core, you know, what they said. Uh, I can go. I think, I believe she was our first speaker, uh, Kiyosha Worthy. Um, she is a black uh, psychology professional in um, CPS. Uh, and her whole presentation 
was I feel like she was just it was just me and her because she was just kind of explaining how sometimes navigating the um, mental challenges and mental health issues as a young black adult is very challenging because we're kind of brought up to be just throw it in the backpack and keep it moving and not really deal with it because there's bigger fish to fry but she was kind of saying that that's totally normal but here are things like she's just listing out things that happen and could be read as something else and it could be a bigger issue and I was like wow it's great to see that I mean a doctor is saying that things that I feel are totally validated and make sense and it's just it's not blowing anything out of proportion I thought that was an amazing speaker to have and I'm definitely thankful we were able to not only connect with her but she gave us uh, her contact information and said she was totally willing to talk to all of the people um, in BSAA and just everyone who needed her and I thought that was an amazing presentation. I guess before we wrap it up I wanted to see Jim do you have any questions for this group uh, is there anything you your that's piqued your interest in the last half hour or so? Great to hear all of it. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with the group, but particularly I'd be a little curious from Ty and Ike on the basketball uh, fundraiser for the Urban League, which I think is very admirable. And I think you guys did a great job with it. And from what I've seen, last I looked, it was up, which was a few couple of weeks ago, it raised about $29,000. And hopefully it's up from that and just hear a little about that for a moment. Um, yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah, so Coach uh, Coach Ingles kind of, we have meetings every Sunday. Um, he kind of told us his idea for what he what he was thinking. Um, and and we, we were all like, we, we were thinking about it positively, obviously. Um, it's, it's a cool thing to do. Uh, it's obviously a fundraise for, for the Urban League. We thought it would be, uh, we thought it would be important to do. Uh, we thought it would make a, make a special impact, but we weren't really sure how much money it would raise because at the end of the day, it was just a bunch of basketball players reading the script. Um, so, so we were kind of confused. Yeah, and singing, of course. Um, so we were confused. Uh, we didn't think it would raise too much money. Um, and then obviously, um, it's had a it's had a really big impact. So it surprised all of us uh, in, in a very good way. So I was happy to be a part of it for sure. Naya, just to speak to that just a little bit more, um, yeah, like just the overall um, idea of it. I, I, I was I was personally kind of confused because I was like, "Who's gonna want to see us sing and like do a play when when none of us like have had like much theater practice or anything like that?" Um, but then just like putting it together, like I, I saw how well it actually kind of came out. And, um, and and I was just like, and I was just blessed and, and happy to be a part of something that was, you know, a, a, a just for a good cause and, and raised a lot of money um, through the alumni and, and, and through the Columbia basketball family um, that was just able to, you know, provide to the community. And, and that was something that I feel like we did a good job on. Well done. Kyle, what do you think? I mean, I think, uh, you know, we really appreciate everybody coming on and, you know, we, we really, you know, we're hoping that this was going to be a great conversation, uh, you know, between you and Jim and, you know, we definitely got 
great insight from Jim from having personally been on campus in the 1960s. And I think some great follow-up from the various members of the Black Student Athlete Alliance that we've had here, uh, sharing, you know, who they are and what they do, and you know how they're trying to make a difference in the Columbia community uh, as a whole and in their communities, I'm sure, at home as well. So, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, we want to thank everybody for coming on today. Uh, we really appreciate that. I'm sure Jim, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm sure this isn't throwing you on the spot, but uh, I'm sure that if uh, any of you want to reach back out to him after, afterward, we can definitely share his, his contact information. Uh, I'm sure Jim won't have a problem with that at all. And um, if you have any follow-up questions and Jim, obviously feel free to do the same uh, for our student athletes. Um, I would say if anybody wants uh, more information about the Black Student Athlete Alliance uh, at Columbia University. You can find that information on gocolumbialliance.com as part of the We Were Together uh, initiative uh, that, that Columbia has ongoing right now. Give them a follow on Instagram at Columbia BSAA. Did I get that right? Right handle? Yeah. There yeah. you go, there you go, there you go. So. All right. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, for Kyle Matrician, I'm Mike Kowalski, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, guys. That was awesome. That was good. Yeah. Thank Great. you, guys. Thanks. Great.